offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, In case you didn't hear, we're in Ruth 4, looking at verses 1 through 12, big portion of scripture this morning. And so while you open or load your Bible, I got a couple of quick things for you. Uh, The first one is that if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. Uh, So fill out a Connect card, drop it in the Connect desk, which is in the back, and uh, one of us will get back with you within 24 hours to take you out for coffee, lunch, dinner, all the things. Hey, whatever you want. It's on us. Your money's no good here. Uh, In addition to that, uh, if you do not have a Bible, let us hook you up with a Bible. That is our gift to you. So we have them in the Connect desk. We have some in the chairs. Uh, Please take one with you. And if you have one, but you know someone that would benefit from God's word, hook them up up. Finally, uh, I think you might see this on the announcement video later this morning. I'm not too sure. This coming Saturday, we're going to be having a men's gathering. It's our August men's gathering. Uh, So gentlemen, that's going to be taking place either here or at the Old Church Wine or here. We're going to be here at the incubator, 1030 in the morning, this coming Saturday. Your job is to bring your Bibles, not your Bible apps, your Bibles. All right, so that'll be this coming Saturday at 10.30, a time for teaching, discussion, fellowship, food, all that wonderful stuff. Other than that, I think that's all I have for you. We have a long piece of scripture to dive into, so I'd like to just get into it. Uh, If you're just joining us, let me kind of catch you up, because over the last several weeks, we've been working through the book of Ruth. This book is short, It is sweet and it is very powerful uh, and it's located in the Old Testament. And the main goal throughout our study has been to examine the beauty of the providence of God. That is his quiet and invisible hand that is at work in what we would call the behind the scenes of our lives. You see, in the book of Ruth, there are no huge miracles. There's no prophet coming before the people of God preaching repentance But there is a great deal of providence over this, what one would consider insignificant family during the time of the judges. Now, the time of the judges was a very dark and corrupt time for the people of God. Additionally, through the providence of God, we have encountered several other themes that are extraordinary. But in Ruth, they are presented to us and they are captured in the ordinary. For instance, the theme of redemption, which is what we're going to talk further about today. We've looked at character and integrity, salvation, generosity, and abundant grace. All of these are beautiful evidences of God's grace on this little family, and all of them occur in the mundane. And that's the whole point of providence. God at work in and through his people without divine intervention and in the ordinary. You see, on this side of the story, we're able to look at the providence of God, and we're able to see all of his work, but not so much when we're in the middle of it, such as the case with Ruth. But it does, however, lead us to a little bit of reflection, and we're going to do a lot of that today. It does lead us to a little bit of reflection, at least for a moment, that when we begin to consider the providence of God it should lead us to ask, what is God doing around me? 
And what is God teaching me? Oftentimes, I think we ask the wrong questions. Or we start with good questions, but maybe they're not the priority. God, what are you doing? God, why is this that? God, why is this there? God, why, why, and why? When we take a moment to step back and reflect on the providence of God, it leads us to ask the question, God, what are you doing and what are you teaching me? God, how are you sanctifying me in this season? I dare you to ask that question. Because it's a lot easier to ask the question, God, why are you doing this? God, why have you done that? I don't understand. But to ask, God, how are you sanctifying me? It's a little bit more of a challenge. As we continue the story into the last chapter, we got this Sunday and next Sunday. As we continue the story into the last chapter, we immediately pick up where we left off last week, where Ruth, in essence, proposes to Boaz. She corners him. Ladies, remember that? She corners him, makes him make a decision. Homeboy makes it. She proposes to Boaz. He vows to redeem her, but not without addressing the elephant in the room. There's another redeemer. There is another individual that is closer, a closer relative to Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who can redeem her, who can redeem them. Boaz tells Ruth that if this other redeemer does not redeem her, he will. And it's at this part of the story where redemption becomes louder and louder. You could say that there has been this crescendo of redemption starting off quietly in chapter one and building its way up to chapter four. And as we begin to close this book, we see redemption lived out as we look to Boaz and as we look through Boaz to the ultimate redeemer, and his name is Jesus. So here's the main idea of our time for this morning. The main idea is that the work of redemption is not just transactional or theological, it is personal. The work of redemption is not just transactional or theological, it is personal. So let me pray and then we'll dig in to our text. God, we thank you for being a good God, a gracious God, a merciful God. And as we have gathered this morning, may we come with thirsty souls and ready hearts to hear your word. So may it be sweeter to us than honey. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Similar to last week, we're going to approach our text with three sections. We're gonna look at the act, the commitment, and then finally, the legacy, right, ACL. We're looking at the act, the commitment, and finally, the legacy. Beginning with verses one through six, we will look at the act. This section picks up right where we left off last week. And so if you weren't here and I just gave you this really giant 50,000 foot view, make sure you listen to last week's and the previous sermons to get caught up. Nevertheless, it picks up right where we left off. At the end of chapter three, Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz will take care of the situation. That is, Ruth has proposed to Boaz. Boaz is like, I'm down. 
There's this thing though, there's another guy, right? And so he goes on to say, I'm gonna handle this situation myself. And Naomi encourages Ruth by telling her, Boaz will take care of the situation that same day. And Boaz is a man of his word. And so that's where the story picks up. So let's go to verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Okay, we're gonna pause right there, okay? As he's doing this, here's what we need to know. We have spoken a great deal about character uh, over the last couple of weeks. You guys remember character, who you are and what you can be counted on to do. We've also spoken a great deal about integrity. That is who you are when no one is looking. As we've talked about this, Boaz has not stopped demonstrating these two attributes. He has feelings for Ruth, he wants to marry Ruth, he makes a plan, and he executes his plan. And so we come to the city gates. And as we come to the city gates, uh, some would say, as luck would have it, but because we don't believe in luck or in coincidence, we would say, the providence of God is present. So Boaz goes to the city gates. Now, the city gates is where most of the business of the city would be handled. Think of it like going to city hall. Think of it, or in our context, it's like he's going to the country omelet or uh, like El Rex, right, downtown to handle business. This is where all the movers and shakers meet, right, to make all sorts of decisions. That's where Boaz is going. And so he goes to the gates and he waits for the Redeemer, right? So it's a, it's a public place where a lot of people are present, right? And check it. Here's what the writer says, and behold. Now that's important because it's the writer's use of clever language. We saw this in chapter two. We saw this in chapter three. It's clever use of language. In other words, pay attention to this. Pay attention to this because this isn't random. When the writer says, or when the writer writes, and behold, it is as if the writer is saying, it just so happened that the other redeemer showed up. So he writes, Boaz went to the city gates and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Come on, right? Anyway, so he goes and Boaz tells him, <clears throat> turn aside friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and told them to sit down and so they sat down. So he gets a couple of witnesses because he's about to engage in some kind of business, right? Now here's what I love about the word friend, right? He says, turn aside friend. In its original language, the, the, this word friend translates to literally so-and-so, <laughs> okay? It's as if he is saying, hey, Mr. So-and-so, go ahead and sit down here, right? Now, this could be to protect this dude's name because he's about to get squashed, right? This could, be because, this could be because it indicates that in a moment, he's about to be forgotten. Like, we don't know much about this dude. This is the only time he comes through or comes out in the story, right? So he asks Mr. So-and-so to sit down, and Boaz has a plan and executes it with wisdom. Now let's look at the plan because it's important how he starts out. Verse three, <clears throat> then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was her husband who passed away. We heard about in chapter one. Here's what's so fascinating about that. He doesn't mention Ruth. 
right? He just finished having this conversation with Ruth. He just hooked Ruth up with all this barley to show Naomi that he's serious and he's going to take care of the family and redeem them. And now he's meeting with this other redeemer and he talks about this land that Naomi has. Doesn't mention Ruth. In essence, he asks this redeemer if he wants to redeem the land. In other words, do you want to buy the land back? so that it would belong to you. In other words, he's kind of telling them, hey, there is some profit for you to make here. I wanted to let you know about some land. I don't know if you knew about it. He's playing dumb. I don't know if you knew about it, but wanted to let you know about some, nam- some land from Naomi. And so he asks him, do you want to redeem it? He tells him in verse four, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me. So he tells him about the land, and homeboy says, I like it. I'll buy it. It's mine. I'll redeem it. Here is where Boaz pulls the ace that was up his sleeve. Right? Like real. If we go here, he says, I will redeem it. Boaz says, verse 5, and I'm going quickly, but I'll I'll tie this all in a bit. Verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Boaz whips out his ace, lays it on the table, and this is what it has. Number one, he tells him, hey, when you redeem this land, you also get Ruth the Moabite. Now, the way he does that, uh, it's intentional. Over the course of the story, we have seen that when the writer writes Ruth the Moabite, he is applying tension to the story. Why? Ruth was the outsider. Ruth was the foreigner. Ruth wasn't with Israel. She wasn't with and among the people of God. And in chapter one, we see God rescue Ruth and fold her into the family of God. That doesn't mean that there wasn't tension. And so Boaz uses that to his advantage saying, when you acquire the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite. So that's number one. Number two, he goes on to tell him, when you acquire her as your wife, you're actually not going to get an inheritance. It's actually for the sake of continuing that family line. Uh, Her husband's name is the one who's going to advance. And finally, he says, you don't just get Ruth. You don't just not get an inheritance. Don't forget, you also get Naomi, right? You get a a mother-in-law like this, right? And homeboy bails, right? That's verse six. The redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself. Here's the significance. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Right? Why does any of this matter? A few weeks ago, I told you what was involved or what is involved in redemption. Redemption requires a willingness. That is a desire to buy someone out of slavery, a desire to buy someone back that that is in some kind of financial uh, uh, bind, a desire to free someone. Redemption involves having a means, and that is money, right? There must be a currency that is paid in order to bring someone else, someone out of their bind, Redemption requires adoption, 
every time we see redemption in scripture, it is almost always affiliated with family. That is, not only is there a willingness, not only is there a means, but there is a folding into the family. You see, the act of redemption for Boaz was one out of love. It was one out of responsibility, not obligation. It was one out of desire, not charity. It was one out of grace, not for profit. That statement by the other redeemer, lest I impair my own inheritance, for him, Redemption was selfish motivation. He was looking out for his own welfare, his own property, his own prosperity. Every week I've, I've posed some practical questions for you at the end of each section, often with application. Today is different. Today I want you to reflect on redemption. Redemption is not an act of affluence. It is a law of love. That's why redemption is so personal. On one hand, this redeemer saw redemption as a burdened obligation where he loses out on, on, on financial gain, whereas Boaz saw it as selfless grace. I want you to think about that. Redemption is not an act of affluence. It is a law of love. Boaz was willing. Boaz had means. And Boaz was about to adopt Ruth and her mother-in-law into the family. This dude didn't want those things. Redemption is not an act of affluence, but a law of love. That's what makes it so personal to you, Christian. Let's continue. These first two sections will go fairly quickly. So we go from the act to the commitment. This is verses 7 through 10. So beginning in verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting it in Israel. Right? So what happens? Boaz and this other redeemer make the deal. Boaz says, I will redeem it. And the other one hooks him up, hooks Boaz up by taking off his chancla and hooking him up. Right? This would be the same thing as shaking hands, signing a contract, good to go. But they went old school, right? So they hook each other up with chunklas. Anyway, <laughs> to symbolize agreement and just securing the transaction. Now, Boaz here says, hey, I'm gonna redeem it. And I want you to notice, he's not just talking about the land. And in his speech toward the elders, in this moment, two things happen. So I'm gonna read it, and then we're gonna look at the two things that happened. So the redeemer tells Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to all the elders, this is at the end, this is verse nine. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. 
Also, Ruth the Moabite, he throws it, right? Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Okay? I want you to notice two things from Boaz. The first, that when it came to redeeming Ruth, Boaz redeemed all of Ruth. He redeems the land. He redeems Ruth personally. He redeems Naomi by folding her in. The family line is now protected. He folds all of them in. He knows Ruth is a Moabite. He knows his future mother-in-law has got some issues and concerns that they've been through some traumatic uh, events and some hardcore devastation. He knows. He knew about the land. He redeems all of Ruth. Not just the parts that he liked, not just this one piece of her life. Every part that is Ruth, he redeems. Number two, Boaz's character, his honor, and his integrity are all demonstrated at once and in public. Since chapter two, we have looked at Boaz's character and how he cares for his employees, how he blesses and prays over Ruth in public, right? Showing off that he's actually this kind of a person all of the time. It's not just because he's trying to impress a young Moabite woman. In chapter 3, we see him uh, reflect integrity as Ruth comes to him at night and startles him and eventually proposes to him in what could have been an incredibly uh, difficult and dangerous situation. Boaz handles it with honor, integrity, and he handles the situation uh, very delicately. Here in front of uh, people in the city and the elders of the city, he's just demonstrating who he has been all along. That's a wonderful demonstration of character. You see, we have regularly looked at Boaz, and this is still true. You and I should continue to look at Boaz. He models godly character. He teaches us what it looks like to walk with integrity and honor people, particularly women. However, we also look through Boaz because when we look through Boaz, his heart reflects that of Jesus. See, in this little section, in verses seven through 10, we see that redemption is not transactional or not simply transactional, nor is it partial, but it is holistic. Holistic in the sense that it is everything. Not just part of Ruth. Not just what he likes about Ruth. Not just the land and a little bit of this. All of Ruth. You'll notice that as we kind of close these little sections, just like we did last week, there isn't like, hey, therefore go and do. For you today, it's for you to reflect on God's redemptive grace for you. And so it is not partial, but holistic. And that brings us to the legacy. This is where we will spend the most of our time. Verses 11 
and 12. Okay? In this closing portion, we see the people respond to Boaz. Check it. By praying for Ruth, the Moabite, the one who was on the outside, the stranger, the foreigner, they pray for her. So let's look at their response because I love it. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So they agree with Boaz. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, the woman, that's Ruth, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epethra and be renowned in Bethlehem. He's talking to Boaz, or they're talking to Boaz, excuse me. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right. This prayer includes this fourfold blessing. Now you would think like, oh, this is the practical side of things. No. All right. This isn't a how-to. This is worship. Okay. It includes a fourfold prayer centered around legacy. Here's the first one. The elders pray that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah. Right? That's the first part of it. We'll go back. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Now, I'm not going to read it all. If you go to Genesis 29 through 30, those are chapters, 29 through 30, you'll get to learn about Rachel and Leah. Here it is. Through Rachel and Leah, they bore 12 sons who would go to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Leah was the mother of Judah. This is the line where Naomi and Boaz come from. The prayer for Ruth from these people, the prayer for Ruth is that she would have a prominent role among the people of God just like Rachel and Leah. The Moabite, the one that was on the outside, the one that wasn't at one point folded into the family of God is now folded into the family of God, has been redeemed in more ways than one. All of her has been redeemed. And the prayer over her is that she would have a prominent role among the people of God. Number two, Ephrathah and Bethlehem. They pray for Boaz's reputation to be known. They pray not just for prosperity, but righteousness. That is his character. Everything that we have seen Boaz exemplify over the last couple of weeks, they pray for that to continue going so that Bethlehem would know who Boaz is, his kindness, his generosity, his compassion, his graciousness. Who comes out of Bethlehem? Jesus. They continue. May your household be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar, who is the widow of Judah's son, this is Genesis 38, at some point sleeps with Judah, has a son, Perez, known as the strongest one. What does God say in Genesis 49? God says that a Messiah, or the Messiah, would come through Judah. That's not enough. 
they close. Because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this young woman. At first glance, what they're saying is, man, we're praying these blessings over you. And praise God, man, that you have a family line. The family line has been protected. There will be a child that will be born one day. Now, what have I told you about providence, right? On the outside, we could see God at work. In the middle, it'd be like, sweet, it's an awesome prayer. Thanks, guys, right? On the outside, here's what we see. That word offspring, its translation means seed. And when you reference all of the other scriptures that we just looked at, but we go all the way back to Genesis 3, what was it that God said? That he is sending one that is coming of the woman's seed. And they would bear a son. And eventually, through Ruth, King David would come. And through King David, he would have an even greater son, King Jesus. You see, in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of the prayer, it's encouraging. Man, we see God at work. For us on the outside, as we are watching them pray through this, we're seeing, oh my gosh, this is all the way from Genesis 3. This is the promise coming through the people of God and using Ruth as a conduit of grace to demonstrate his providence and his glory. When we consider redemption, I want to revisit three things that I just told you about, and I want to expand on them now. See, when we consider redemption, I've told you it's personal. I've told you it's holistic. And here at the end, it is status changing. I couldn't think of another cool word. So I just put that. Beginning with it being personal. Listen, some of you view redemption solely as transactional. Good for me. It's a convenience to me. Look at what God's done. Sweet, awesome, cool. When it's transactional, you risk apathy and walk in arrogance. Some of you, on the other hand, view redemption purely theologically. This is what God has done through his son. This is what redemptive grace is. I have been bought out of my slavery. Awesome. I'm correct. I would have gotten the test right. Here's the thing. You walk arrogantly and subscribe to intellectualization. You just intellectualize the whole thing. When redemption is personal, you are humbled before God. Stop taking the notes. Think. Close your eyes. We're going to kind of pull a Mr. Rogers. I'm just going to keep talking. But just reflect on this. There isn't no go and do right now. It is a sit and think. Sit and meditate that we would delight in God. See, the wrath of God was meant for you, Christian. And in his grace, he bore that on your behalf, on the cross, willingly. His blood was the means by which you were redeemed. That is the currency he used to buy you out of your bondage, out of your slavery to your sin. 
and his grace is what folded you into the family of God. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Redemption is a personal work from God for you, Christian. You have been redeemed. It goes much further than a transaction or a point of theology. You have been redeemed. Secondly, redemption is holistic. Holistic in the sense that not just parts of you, but your entire self has been redeemed. See, Boaz knew about the devastation Ruth had experienced. Boaz knew the tension that came with marrying a Moabite who loved God. And without skipping a beat, he pursues her and redeems her. You have scars and hurts. You have pain. You have sin and a history. And Jesus redeems all of you fully knowing that apart from him, every part of you is affected by sin. It's not like he doesn't know that. He redeems all of you, not just some of you, not just partial bits, all of you. And finally, redemption changes your status. It changes your identity. Ruth, who was the Moabite, became Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. In redemption, you are given the seal of authenticity. And that is that through the Holy Spirit, you are sealed. Meaning that your status has been rightly changed. You are no longer a slave but a son or a daughter. You are no longer an orphan without a family. You are a child with brothers and sisters in Christ. Your identity changes, and that then informs your activity. While we ought to be the most humble because, man, redemption humbles us before the Lord. That there was, what is one of the things that Ruth says? How have you found sight or favor in me when she's going to Boaz? In other words, she's saying, I have nothing to give you and yet you are finding favor in me. That's exactly us before the Lord when it comes to this theme that is redemption. That when God is redeeming us, we would say, what is it in us that you found favor? And he says, it is a law of love that I have redeemed you. Your status is now changed, and while we ought to be the most humble, we, in addition, must be the most evangelistic and the most missional in telling people that Jesus has saved us through his redemptive grace. It was a gift I did not earn. It was a gift I've received. How many of us work around people who don't know Jesus and they don't know? that we know Jesus. How many of them are surprised when they find out that you're kinda like a Christian? See, if we live in that way, then it's because we view redemption transactional or theological. 
But if we live redemption, if we walk out in redemption in a way that is personal and holistic, we want to tell everybody about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done. Let me tell you who Jesus is. See, through Christ, he pours his grace out onto you and through you. He takes outsiders like Ruth and us and makes us insiders. We must take the opportunities to tell those of the greatest story of redemption. Ruth the Moabite was the conduit of grace that God used to bring about his glory. The outsider. The one who was just like all of us. You weren't born on the inside. You did not start off that way. We were all on the outside, and through his grace, we have been called to the inside. So today, as we rejoice, actually, let me say it this way. Today, may we rejoice in this wonderful work of redemptive grace from God for us with worship. Not just singing, but with our very lives. May we rejoice with thanksgiving, actually looking at what God has done for you. May we rejoice with adoration, looking at who God actually is. Redemption changes everything, and through his providence, you have been redeemed, all of you. So Christian, as we close, do you revel in the fact that you have been redeemed by God in Christ? Is redemption purely transactional? And if so, what does that reveal about your heart? Is redemption solely theological? If so, what does that say about your relationship with Jesus? Redemption is a personal work of God's grace for you. So confess your sin, look to Jesus, and may you walk in the newness of life that he has given you. And if you don't know Jesus, Redemption is a grace that is offered by Christ for sinners. One that cannot be earned. And apart from Christ, you are enslaved. And it is only through his redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that you can be redeemed. Jesus offers this salvation, this redemption, this pardon to all who would turn from their sin and turn toward him, surrendering to his lordship and forsaking their own. Repent and believe. Church, redemption is not simply transactional or theological. It is a personal work of God's grace for you. Let's pray.
Jesus, forgive our sins. Jesus, would you forgive the sins that we remember? Would you forgive the sins that we have forgotten? Would you forgive our many failures in the face of temptation? And those times when we have been too stubborn in the face of correction, would you forgive us, Lord? Would you forgive the harsh judgments that we make against others and the leniency that we show ourselves? Lord, you have freely given us redemptive grace in calling us to yourself, forgiving our sins, and reconciling us to the Father. Therefore, may our hearts cry this morning. May our hearts cry be, redeeming love has been our theme and shall be till we die. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you in your sight this morning. Amen. Amen.